0: This week, we speak with Dan Petit about his DevSecOps workshop. In the news segment, probing protocols proves problematic for web and phone stacks, reasons for launching more rigorous, rigorous testing, Safari gives TL certs, TLS certs a status of 398. I managed to read more clearly throughout the rest of the show, and more. Stay tuned for Application Security Weekly.
1: This is a Security Weekly production. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. With 84% of cyber attacks targeting the application layer, securing your software is more challenging than ever. Synopsis enables DevSecOps with a portfolio of industry-leading tools including Coverity, Black Duck, and Seeker, to help you build secure, high-quality software faster. Synopsis is the leader in application security testing. Visit SecurityWeekly.com forward slash Synopsis to learn more. Nearly every business today relies on mobile applications, yet the vast majority do not adequately secure them. Once downloaded, mobile apps escape your control outside the secure network perimeter, thus making them easy targets for hackers. Enter GuardSquare. From the makers of ProGuard, GuardSquare integrates transparently and seamlessly into the development process, adding multiple layers of protection to Android and iOS applications, and effectively hardening apps against both on-device and off-device attacks. Request a demo today of GuardSquare at securityweekly.com forward slash GuardSquare. Square. with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Welcome to
0: Application Security Weekly. This
1: is episode
0: 98, recorded March 2nd, 2020. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with Matt Alderman. Hey, Matt. Good morning. From 70 and sunny to 20 and snow, What a what a weekend shift. A <laughs> bit of a change from RSA in San Francisco, I guess, for you. <laughs> Just a bit. Uh, well, we also we still got John with us. so John Kinsella is here. Hey John. Still here, I'm
2: still alive. How are you guys doing? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to um, see how our our rekindled connection goes now that we've actually met in person.
0: <laughs> That's right. We're back to fully remote in three different places. Sounds great. Speaking of different places, uh, join us at Infosec World 2020, March 30 through April 1st at the Disney Contemporary Resort. Security Weekly listeners save 15% off the InfoSec World Main Conference or World Pass. Visit securityweekly.com slash ISW2020. Click the register button to register with our discount code or the schedule button to sponsor a micro-interview. Ocean and the Pell Center are partnering together to present Cybersecurity Exchange Day on Wednesday, March 18th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Salve Regina University in the beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. Visit securityweekly.com slash ocean2020, that's O-S-H-E-A-N 2020, to register for free and come join in the fun. Dan Petit has been deep in the development world for most of his working life serving as a developer, consultant, architect, and technical leader for a wide variety of companies in the aerospace, telecom, insurance, hospitality, logistics, and service industries. Throughout his career, Dan and his teams have been responsible for large-scale DevOps adoption and transformations, reducing cycle time of application changes from weeks to hours across dozens of Agile development teams. He's currently principal DevOps architect for Hilton. He authored the book, Real Visual Basic, and numerous technical articles, and teaches a two-day deep dive DevSecOps workshop for the FedEx Institute of Technology at the University of Memphis. Hello, Dan, and thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. Great to be here.
0: And it's great to talk about this DevSecOps transformation, because we have three different things here, I guess, DevSec and Ops. We also have some Agile in there as well, it sounds like, and we want to transform them all. So what does this actually mean to, to transform a team into DevSecOps or, or something like that?
3: Yeah, it's really a large scale, uh, more of an organizational level change. The, the basic premise is how can we leverage architecture, technologies, people, tools, processes, etc., to create teams that are fully autonomous and fully um, capable of supporting their own applications and doing everything that they need to do at their applications. So think of it as I have an individual team that is aligned very tightly with a particular business segment or customer base, and that team can plan, design, build, test, deploy, verify, and operate their software to the greatest extent possible without having to engage other teams. So the idea is with DevSecOps principles in play, these individual teams can reduce their cycle time um, while simultaneously driving up high quality uh, compliance, security, uh, resiliency, etc. So it's an overall uh, cultural transformation that involves obviously development, obviously operations, but a strong Uh, Influence from the security community as well, uh, so that we don't just pump out a lot of really bad code fast. We are actually able to pump out really great applications that delight customers, but remain secure, compliant, and resilient all along the way.
4: Dan, so you 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 mentioned something that's very interesting that I wanted to to get your clarify or get your take on, because what you said was very very interesting in that. You know, it could be for a specific business unit, specific customer base. That means decentralization. And traditionally, we've been a little more siloed on the enterprise side, right? So is decentralization the ability to allow these teams to work as small teams, kind of decentralized from maybe a a more hierarchical org structure, part of the culture and success for these types of teams?
3: Yeah, so I, you know, I, I think that there's a relationship between DevOps and Agile. They are not, they are not necessary uh, necessarily related. I would argue that Agile teams really require DevOps principles in order to be Agile. Uh, it's very difficult to just organize your work in with an Agile uh, sort of mindset, but then not be able to execute because you've got too much uh, sort of legacy processes in the way. Um, but the idea in Agile is to have self sufficient teams that are capable of doing what they need to do. Um, and DevOps concepts really help where the rubber meets the road and drive those concepts to, to fruition. Um, it, the, the term I like to use is, is uh, autonomous but aligned. Uh, so we're not, it, this isn't just, hey, all you teams, go do whatever you want. Here's the keys to production. Good luck. Uh, it's really providing a strong framework that allows teams to be autonomous, so they're not artificially coupled together, but simultaneously aligned with large-scale corporate initiatives uh, and standards and security compliance ideas, uh, and, and just overall quality within their enterprise. So it's not, um, you know, it is a decentralization, but I consider it to be a safe decentralization because we're we're trying to. Uh, make, sure, make sure that all of the, the important requirements are still met. It's not a zero-sum game. We're not saying developers, here you go, um, good luck, and all of a sudden quality and, and compliance and security go out the window. Uh, we really want to raise the bar in all areas. We want teams to be able to go faster and release code faster and have stronger MTTR uh, and you know better uptime, et cetera, as a result of the transformation. And you've
0: been talking about quality quite a bit, too, and mentioning, in, in this case, giving teams that autonomy and automation. And with quality, I think you're, we're also starting to get into that security angle here, too. And my question here is, we, we, we focus a lot right now on sort of the dev and the ops part that call it the, the automation, the autonomy. When we start to sneak in that security part... What really, I guess, how, does that emerge from these DevOps principles or do we actually still, is that where we still have that tight alignment and we need a lot of cross-team participation? I, I guess what I'm asking sure. is how do we transform that security aspect into it?
3: It, it is tricky, right? I, I always say that when you think about what Dev wants in, a, in an IT organization, they want to be able to innovate and release code quickly with minimal red tape. And the operations side of the house, they basically just don't want flaming balls of stuff thrown at them. And they want their stuff to be able to be supported. And, um, you know, generally that means controlling and minimizing change. And quite frankly, security oftentimes just wants to be invited to the dance. They, they need a seat at the table and they want to be taken seriously. And uh, in a lot of organizations, um, that's tricky. Uh, you have these two other factions that are sort of defending their own borders, uh, and security is doing everything they can to insert themselves into the process. Uh, and that often positions them in such a way that they are the department of no. They're, they're, there's the third uh, leg of the stool and they're always sort of positioned at the end of the software development and software release process. Uh, and the idea of DevSecOps is to really drive the right behaviors that we want to see in our organizations from a security perspective into the teams on a continuous basis. Instead of security being something that development and operations teams think of only right before they go to production, we want the day-to-day behaviors of the development and, and, and engineering teams to be compliant already um, and be secure. So it's DevOps is about this continuousness of, of applying uh, our, our standards and uh, you know best practices and ver- uh, verifying them and validating them on a continuous basis that we never we never sway too far, and the more we can automate that, and the more that we can rely on tools and technology to help with that, the more uh, autonomous the development teams can be without sacrificing quality, security, etc.
4: Yeah, and that brings in two very important principles you hit on. It's integration of the security tools and then automation of certain tests, right? Because if I can't fully integrate the security capabilities and testing into the into the pipeline, and I don't get some of that level of automation, then we're going to slow the pipeline down. And that friction is where security usually gets itself in trouble.
3: Absolutely. I, I fight that on a regular basis, to be honest with you. It, it, to, the, the security scanning industry. The tool industry is maturing very, very rapidly, but it's still a little bit of a balancing act. Uh, There's always a concern of how long do these scans take and what is the signal to noise ratio? Am I going to take a long time waiting for a scan and then get a bunch of results that have to be explained away? Or is it going to give me an instantaneous scan that's going to give me exactly what I need to work on? Um, We're not at the latter yet. We're still in the former for the most part, where we have to uh, work with security partners and we have to work across the board to make sure that we can drive the right behaviors into the team. What we don't want to do is blast development teams and operations teams with a whole bunch of noise about security, because that actually makes the problem worse, not better. We want to give them really strong signal to noise ratio. We want them want to give them facts as often as possible. Um, and. If the only way that we can release software is through a good, secure, compliant process that is enforced with strong automation and strong technology, um, then our position in being able to actually be secure on an ongoing basis becomes that much stronger.
2: Dan, I want to throw you a question. This isn't meant to be a curveball. It might sound like it from what we've been talking about. Excuse me. But thinking about... Uh, minimizing that friction, and as we have operations start to move some of our, our, our uh, let me rephrase that, operations start to give access to some of these things to the engineering and development side of the house. Um, this is something been on my mind for the last week or so, but I'm curious to hear from from your guys point of view, either you know current experience, previous experience, what you've heard in the industry, authentication, um, authentication and authorization are is is that a a sticking part in that friction? When suddenly you're starting to allow people to have access to something that they didn't have access to before, or maybe a tool which suddenly used to only be security, but now you're bringing developers into it. Any thoughts or comments around that? Is, is, is that part of this overall friction or defrictionizing?
3: Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, you know, generally we try to provide teams with self-service capabilities, and there's authentication and authorization around those self-service capabilities. So, um, you know, we're not to be clear. You know, we're not giving team's access to do things that they shouldn't do We're trying to make sure they're locked down up front. Um, I, I like to equate it to uh, the buffet instead of um, a, an operations team being the waiter at a, at a restaurant serving the individual teams, their job shifts into preparing a buffet where the patrons can serve themselves. Um, and it's a lot about providing the path of least resistance. If I walk into a restaurant and there's food on the buffet that I like and I can serve myself right away, that is my path of least resistance. I can still order off the menu um, if I want to, but it's going to take longer. And that's really what a lot of this is about. We, we provide – we don't just open it up completely wildly. We make sure that whatever experiences we enable through self-service and through uh, you know, sim- simplistic technologies, that those are rock solid and secure, and we only provide the appropriate levels of access that are needed. Um, and we position those uh, opposite what you know, what might be a longer running legacy process at an organization and uh, you know when you give developers a chance you give development teams a chance to choose between I can go this way um, and it's self-service enabled and it's secure and it's compliant and it's fast versus, I want to use some weird technology that I've never used before and I'm going to do something different and it may be a security risk, et cetera, and I can go down this this path that's going to take me forever. By and large, the teams are going to choose the path of least resistance. And that actually helps us drive the right, secure, compliant behaviors into the work of the teams.
2: Mm. I think this is a, um, a question I'm going to start bringing up as we talk to various practitioners on the show. Um, and I think you know that analogy you said of uh, um, buffet versus waiter—that's great. I, I really love that. But also, I think this is going to be a bit of a sign of the level of maturity of an organization that goes into DevSecOps. To use that phrase, um, are they just getting enough tools or scanners and components in place to allow people to do their job, or have they actually thought through what the ramifications of some of those access levels are?
3: Yeah, I, I think you're right. You, you can't you can't replace security knowledge. Uh, necessarily, right? The tools aren't, aren't at a spot where they're spoon feeding remediation strategies into teams yet. Um, so we can provide transparency into the quality of, uh, of the code and security of code uh, through scanning tools. Uh, but organizations that I've worked with often have security champions that are then helping drive that message back into those individual autonomous teams to make sure they understand uh, the risks associated with it and, you know, some even the, the engineering practices that might be needed to remediate some of the problems found during scanning, uh, whether it's a, a statics code, code scan or some kind of dynamic scan, or if it's a scan that we're putting onto a, a binary repository or something along those lines, because uh, there's so many different trajectories that we have to look out for. It's really difficult to think that development teams are going to understand them all. Um, so the idea is that consultation is still needed, but we want to move it into a spot in the process where it really, really can have an impact and driving those behavior changes rather than, again, positioning InfoSec as the department of no at the end of some long development and release process.
0: Riffing a little bit on that idea of uh, maturity and driving the behaviors that will have the most positive impact, what, what have you seen in terms of teams, uh, or I guess pitfalls to avoid, in the sense that a team says, sure, we did transformation, we release faster and we have a bunch of tools hooked up to our pipeline, therefore we're now DevOps. Um, and maybe we'll bring in the security team to consult every once in a while, just to, to look things over. So what are some ways to, you know, getting to the idea of you can transform, but you don't necessarily transform successfully. What does a successful transformation okay. look like for you or the, those, um, you know, the, those red flags to say, we need to redirect where this path is going.
3: That's a great question. Um, you know, The DevOps transformations borrow a lot from lean theory and lean manufacturing. And there's a concept in lean manufacturing called an and on cord, uh, which basically is a a stopper uh, cord that's positioned at all the workplaces inside of the manufacturing process. And what that does is it empowers people who are working on the assembly line to stop the presses, so to speak, if they see a quality problem that's moving their way. And uh, when that cord gets pulled, uh, people swarm to the problem and they try to figure out what's going on. And it's based on the premise that people who are closest to the work are the ones that are most qualified to, to fix anomalies with quality. Um, I, I think the, the equivalent of the Andon cord in IT is a continuous integration pipeline. And the, the degree to which organizations are successful at DevSecOps transformations has a lot to do with how often they are really utilizing their continuous integration pipelines. Um, A lot of organizations treat them as just automatic build and deploy. I don't pay any attention to this data unless something blows up. Uh, I check in code and the code fails a scan, but I ignore it for two weeks and I fix it at the end of the sprint or I fix it right before we go to release. Um, It's those behaviors that I think are the ones that are the surefire indication of how mature an organization is. If you check in some code and it is run through a very rigorous set of scans and tests, et cetera, and those tests fail, that is the equivalent of pulling the and on cord, and the team should stop what they're doing and fix those problems, whether they're security related or quality related or load related or whatever. The degree to which teams take that notion seriously is the degree to which teams are really growing and improving continuously. That's what I've found. That makes a lot of sense, because it
0: also ties in that idea of a, you know, basic engineering principle of a a feedback loop as well. And I would imagine that, um, you know, the logging that you're doing in your application is also going to be another thing that's just feeding back information that someone actually responds to rather than dumping it off into some data store for, to, to be ignored forever. I'm curious too. We also have been talking a little bit of of what it is, you know, what is this transformation, how this transformation might occur, or how we might implement it, but perhaps you know, I'd like to go back to a little bit of the why should we perhaps consider uh, this this type of transformation, and a little bit of what I'm getting at is that there are different ways of developing and operating um, applications. But what about securing them? You know, why does being able to release from a cadence of weeks down to hours benefits security? Or why does being able to have our um, IT metaphorical and on cord in the CICD process help us from a security angle?
3: Yeah, I think it, it helps from a security angle the same way it helps from an overall quality angle and that it allows you to sort of develop this, this fabric of confidence, um, sort of the safety net. Imagine a trapeze artist, uh, you know, 50, 60 feet in the air trying to do tricks without a safety net. They would, very, uh, they would take very strong precautions to make sure they didn't fall. If you add in a safety net, all of a sudden, they're doing all kinds of tumbling. And the idea here is we want to enable teams to innovate quickly. Innovation is no longer this thing that we can, that most organizations can afford not to do. Uh, the idea that uh, companies are longstanding, uh, strong businesses that can't be disrupted is now, is, is fundamentally false. It's been proven to be fundamentally false. Um, and, and there are numerous examples from Uber to Netflix, etc., of companies coming in and just completely upending an entire industry, not playing fair. They're not they're not coming at those markets, playing the game the same way everybody else played with. They're using technology in, in unique ways. So organizations have to learn to integrate, uh, excuse me, to innovate. And innovation means releasing software and, and getting feedback quickly from your users so you understand whether you're working on the right things. Um, and from a security perspective, as companies learn to innovate faster, we don't want security to be left behind, right? We don't want, we don't want this to be we're moving fast or we're being secure. We want it to always be both. Um, so the continuousness that a DevSecOps transformation provides allows that to happen where security is constantly being taken into consideration. That's the real gist of it from my perspective.
0: Yeah, so it's almost like we're, it's, it's not a move fast to break things. It's a move fast and let's wrap ourselves in our, um, you know, super suit of the fabric of confidence, which I, I love that phrase. I'm going to steal that fabric of confidence for quite a while now. <laughs> it's it's yeah, speeding it's up uh, the OODA loop. <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> it's a, you know, it, it's not, again, it's not a zero-sum game. The companies that, that are successful with DevSecOps transformations um, see, you know, there's four major metrics. One is how often do you deploy? and how often, um, uh, how long does your code sit before it gets deployed? And then those are sort of measurements of speed and agility. And then there's mean time to recovery, which is how long does it take for you to respond from a problem? And uh, change failure rate, how often do you, when you deploy something, do you have to go back and fix it? And what, what, you know, industry surveys have shown over time um, Mm. is that all of those metrics get better at organizations that are, engaged in a DevSecOps transformation. It's not, we're going fast, but suddenly we, we're we seeing a lot of outages. Uh, we're responding quicker, we're reacting quicker, we're, we're more resilient and we're producing better quality. It's all, all, all. It's not, not a trade-off.
0: Yeah, and I absolutely love how a lot of this is coming back to the quality of the software, which is a perhaps parallel or, you know, a important component to security of the software as well. And you listed off some great metrics. You have also been talking about some automation, but you've also been alluding to behaviors quite a bit. So there there definitely is this people aspect to a DevSecOps or a DevOps transformation. What are some ways to see that the people are transforming successfully or some ways to measure that that um, culture wise you're actually embracing this in in a good healthy manner?
3: Yeah, I I think that there are um there's certainly metrics that you can get from your scanning, like are things improving over time, and are you seeing, uh, you know, any incidents in production and things like that. Um, the 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 degree to which organizations are deploying code quickly is also a pretty good sign. Uh, can we put code into production very, you know, fairly quickly, and and are we always making sure that that code uh, is in good shape? Um, it's it's a tricky it's a tricky balance because we're we're wanting to ensure that organizations are remaining compliant and, and secure um, to the greatest extent possible. But security as everyone knows is is a it's sort of a subjective thing. There's no such thing as secure. It's how secure are we and how much risk are we taking and how is that measurement of, of risk weighing in against our ability to succeed in an innovative world um, and that's the balance
0: well then what advice so as, as you mentioned you know security is neither a 100% achievable goal nor is that even the right way necessarily to be thinking about it so bugs happen vulnerabilities happen uh, CVEs happen through year after year, uh, then what what advice would you have for a DevOps team that's going through this transformation and they receive a vulnerability, um, something comes in from a pen test report or from a bug bounty report, and they now actually have to deal with something that, let's say, might, in fact, be a serious vulnerability?
3: Yeah, uh, obviously the infrastructure as code movement is a strong push in this area. So, um, you know, one of the big challenges with patching long-lived servers is that they're long-lived and that they're out there forever. We have to manage them forever. We have to nurture and feed them for a long period of time. Um, The quicker organizations could get to environment immutability, the better off they are, uh, whether that happens through their servers or through containers or whatever they happen to be working on. Uh, that allows the fundamental problem of patching to be changed. So rather than worrying about trying to patch hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of instances of a of now a defective uh, server, you simply change it in one place in the code, uh, and you roll out the new version of the servers and replace the old servers. And it makes a it's a fundamentally different way of approaching the problem, uh, but it takes a pretty good amount of maturity to get there. It's it's one of the main enablers in a DevSecOps transformation, uh, which is funny because the usually infrastructure and environments are some of the slowest things in our organizations. Uh, but with with the appropriate amount of automation and the appropriate amount of, of infrastructure as code practices, we can actually turn that, uh, that thing that's normally very slow into one of our key enablers that we can rely on to help us with things like patching and help us with things like, um, you know, ephemeral test environments and ephemeral environments for security scanning and things like that. So instead of this being something very painful, we actually can leverage it to, to go even faster.
4: And it creates That's this cool. concept of resiliency, because if we can't get to 100% security, the question is how resilient is our infrastructure and our applications uh, in production? And, and you talked about a lot of the components. I don't think most people are there yet. Uh, infrastructure's code, and immutability of containers, et cetera, but when you master those, the overall resiliency of my infrastructure and applications are there to the point where I don't necessarily have to be 100% secure.
3: Absolutely. It's like the promised land, right? You you you, you know what's where, and if you've gotten to that spot where you can uh, just swap out something that that's already running and is bad... Um, yeah, you're in a great spot. You know, it allows you to take a roll forward approach rather than a roll-back approach. Uh, it it just it it's just freedom in in terms of being able to manage your infrastructure uh, while while maintaining a great level of security across the organization.
0: I think John, you had a, a comment you wanted to dive in with.
2: I'll just go play a little devil's advocate on that, um, and, and not so much in a bad way, but I, I think. I, I, at least when, when I hear what you were just talking about, Dan, I think a pretty good number of our listeners already have, they're going to respond back and say, but I've already got Puppet. Um, it, and that's not a direct response to, to what you're saying, right? But it's, does that um, resonate with what you've heard when you've sort of had this conversation with people? We've already got that piece of it, um, or is that um, maybe not quite a, a, a complete statement, shall I say?
3: Uh, it, I think they're complementary. I think uh, item potency and item potent technologies, Puppet and Chef and Ansible and, and the, the Microsoft uh, PowerShell extensions, etc. They allow you to do declared state programming, where you can define the state and you can apply that to a living server over an extended period of time, and that can be your patching strategy, or your maintenance strategy. And I don't, I don't necessarily view that as a problem. Uh, that's actually a good spot to be. Um, Immutability is better, I think, uh, as maybe a a step after that, because the one thing that immutability really allows you to do is remove interactive logins um, pretty convincingly, uh, so no one ever logs into a server for any reason ever, Uh, and there isn't a long-running agent that you need to keep track of the logs on, etc., and that just makes demonstrating compliance easier in the long run. but I, I think you can get to a very very mature state with either one of those approaches. I, I don't I don't necessarily think that um, you you have to ultimately get to immutability on in a platform. Uh, there's a lot of benefit in just getting to infrastructure as code in a declared state kind of world, um, and and a lot of the things that help enable um, environment provisioning etc. are are realized already just by getting to the uh, you know to a, an infrastructure as code world, so I, I don't I don't view it as a problem. There there are different ways of solving the same issues, uh, and they're mm-hmm. both outstanding ways of doing it.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm just now thinking out loud. Do you think that would help an organization being ha- having that level of infrastructure as code in place? Is that going to help an organization migrate to the cloud more easily once they've got the puzzle pieces in place?
3: Yeah, I I, I think if you're going to the cloud and you're trying to do it through user interfaces, you're doing it wrong. That's, that's Mm kind of my, that's kind of my, my sense of it. Uh, You know, there's a story I tell in the, in the class about, you know, for the first 40 years of operations, we sat and watched red and and green lights blink in a data center. Um, And then we had this thing um, where we went into the data center and pulled out a keyboard and, set the KVM switch so that at the computer that was third down in the rack pointed at the monitor and the keyboard and we patched it by doing that. And then remote desktop came out and we did the same thing. Uh, we just didn't leave our desk and we basically managed computers the exact same way for really for until about the last 15 years or so. Even when virtualization came around, companies did not fundamentally change the way they managed their systems. They just had more of them. Um, with infrastructure as code and some of these models, we're fundamentally changing the way organizations actually do their infrastructure work. And that is the key enabler, that is the key difference. And it's tricky because people who are greatly skilled in managing servers over a long period of time um, may not necessarily have the exact same skills that are needed to live in a um, in a declared state infrastructure as code world. So the, the transition isn't seamless, it's not simple. It takes training, it takes uh, perspective and, and you know, a willingness to adapt and, and learn something new. Uh, but the trade-offs are, are just fantastic. The rewards are great. Dan, Thanks it's not
4: only how, it's also who. Because who, exactly. who's doing this infrastructure's code is different. It's yeah. not the IT team anymore. It's actually parts of the development team that are actually spinning up this infrastructure. That's That's new also, which I think scares sure. a lot of people.
2: But that comes uh, back to my first point too, right? <laughs> but
4: that comes that
2: comes back to the point I was saying before about um, the authentication authorization. Because suddenly, you know, I, I was, was going to make a joke about giving me flashbacks about getting the KBM card and uh, the cable not working right, and I'll have nightmares about that. But it was us on the ops doing that versus now you've sort of that authorization authentication. You're sort of giving the the physical example of that, giving those people access to the systems.
3: Yeah, I, I think it's critical that uh as we allow development teams and these sort of um autonomous teams to define more and more of the stack that their application is going to play in that we have appropriate controls in place and appropriate guardrails in place to make sure that we're not just given the keys to the asylum to the inmates because um, uh, to be honest with you uh, while they're while they're exciting and they're they're certainly transforming the industry uh, container-based technologies are not a thousand percent mature yet you know they're it, there's it's still a developing landscape there's still uh, attack vectors and trajectories that, that are undiscovered in that space because uh, they're they've only been in common use for a few years now um, and developers by and large are not trying to solve the problem of build a secure container they're trying to get their infrastructure team out of the way because they're moving too slow Uh, So developers are coming at it from the perspective of, I just want my pain to go away. They're not necessarily saying, gee, let me go grab some containers so that I can build a super secure environment. Uh, That's not how they approach the problem. Um, So we have to catch them in the act, so to speak, and ensure that while they're making that transition and and these people that are not necessarily um, the folks who have been traditionally maintaining our infrastructure have the awareness of the kinds of things that can go wrong in that space um, and we make that, again, part of that fabric of confidence so that they're producing container images that we can trust rather than uh, you know, just random stuff that we're throwing into production because it's easier to manage.
0: Well, Dan, you've definitely given us way, way more than just some random stuff by condensing at least a lot of great parts of two days into 30 minutes with us now. Um, as we wrap up here, I want to give you a chance. Is there something else you want to tease or some more details you'd like to share about the uh, the, the full two-day workshop that's coming up at, at InfoSec World at the end of the month?
3: Sure. Sure. Uh... Yeah, we, we, the, the class is really a, uh, an extension of work that I did at the University of Memphis here uh, in Memphis, and the driver behind it is helping organizations learn to innovate safely, learn to innovate more quickly. Um, and, and I really, uh, you know, my, my style of presenting is is predominantly improvisatory. I make it up as I go, and I react to what the audience has to say about it. I try to keep folks on their toes. I want them to ask appropriate questions and uh, and learn from the experiment, uh, from the experience. So they're all a little different, and they're all uh, they're all I think interesting in their own their own regard. Um, there's a strong emphasis on automated testing. There's a strong emphasis on CI/CD. Uh, we cover collaboration. We cover a lot about information security. And there's a big section at the end um, on audit and compliance and how that is impacted by the the DevOps transformation. Uh, So I call it a deep survey, uh, which seems like an oxymoron. But basically, the idea is to cover the entire landscape of the DevOps world. uh, But we don't really get into tools. We're not digging into labs, and it's not a hands-on kind of class. It's meant to be a transformational class, um, and it, it specifically targets... Uh, thought leaders and leaders within the IT uh, industry. So uh, I'm really excited to to get an opportunity to, to talk about it at InfoSec World. So it's a great venue. Um, and hey, we're at Disney World. So what can you say?
0: well we can say thank you for giving us the opportunity to chat for a bit about um, and give us a preview of a lot of the the transformational aspects here also want to thank uh, matt and john as well for joining us i want to thank all of our listeners as well so thanks again dan and thanks everyone we're going to take a quick break and we're going to return with news of the week